Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12, and you'll also receive a complimentary six months of digital access to The Telegraph for free. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode, I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How do the Chinese see these issues? Though it is recovering, the pandemic did hit China hard. Its retail sales are still down and lockdown had deeper impact on the sector than the financial crisis itself. But one of the sectors driving a bounce back is the luxury goods industry. As lockdown eased, tales of revenge spending spread, of rich Chinese who'd been stuck at home for months finally able to open their wallets. One Hermes shop in Shenzhen pulled in a record-breaking £2 million of sales in one day in April when it reopened. Now, this might be no surprise to listeners who frequent the luxury brands in London's New Bond Street who have seen Chinese language signs, Asian shop assistants... And maybe you've taken the train to Bista Village, the designer outlet village just outside of Oxford, where announcements are made in Mandarin after English. It's thought that Bista Village is the second most popular destination for Chinese tourists in the UK, second only to Buckingham Palace. And the numbers back up the stories. A third of the world's luxury spenders are Chinese, and Bain predicts that this figure will be 46% within five years. So why do the Chinese love luxury goods just so much? And where are they getting the money from? I'm joined today by two people in the know. Sarah Jane Ho is a businesswoman who founded China's first finishing school, Institute Sarita. And Gregory Cole is a co-founder of the consultancy CDGL, which advises high-end companies on how to make headway in China. Now, before we start, I just want to play you both a short clip from a GQ video in which I first came across Sarah Jane. Versace. 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 Dolce and Gabbana. Gucci. 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 Now, for listeners who are confused, that is part of the course that Sarah Jane offers at her finishing school, where she teaches wealthy Chinese women how to pronounce correctly the luxury brands that they love so much. Now, Sarah Jane, you've previously said that you want to be the Martha Stewart of China. Can you talk a little bit about the demand that Institute Sarita is trying to fulfill? Well, you know, I'm always tweaking my course schedule. So I myself went to Swiss finishing school, so I didn't just sort of plop the whole course in, into China. I really made a lot of changes and suit, localized it based on the needs of my students. You know, all my students love to wear luxury brands, but they were having some trouble pronouncing them. So they didn't quite know how to pronounce Versace. They were calling it Versace. Hermes, they were pronouncing it Hermes. And you know something? I mean, this isn't this isn't something that Chinese people don't just know how to pronounce. Um, it's something that Americans have a lot of trouble with, as well as you know other people around the world. And uh, it just so happened that my my students, I felt, well, you know, if you're buying it, then you really should kind of, you know, it's like learning to say somebody's name if you don't know how to say your friend's name. You know, it just doesn't feel right. And I mean, I grew up studying German and French, and I do like a bit of fashion. So I thought, well, you know, why not just make that into a into a course, and our students find it immediately practicable because we we tell them actually that learning to correctly pronounce a brand's name is is really the first step to understanding its her- heritage and its culture behind it. That sounds brilliant. And Greg, all this is 
very new, of course, as Sarah Jane has identified. So can you just give, an, give listeners an idea of how recently these luxury brands find China and what were those early years of entering the market like? So that started around the same time that you saw the economic boom happening around the late 70s and the early 80s. So the first brand, which was really quite early, was Pierre Cardin in 1978. And then the other household names really started joining in the 90s. So you have Cartier in 1990, Louis Vuitton in 92, and Chanel and Burberry in 93, and then Gucci and Hermes were a little bit latecomers in 96. So you really have a whole generation that grew up not only with the economic boom and being able to being lifted into the middle class, really, but also seeing these brands coming in as kind of potential badges of success and, and a new offering that they didn't have domestically at the time. Mm. Sarah Jane, what do you think is at the bottom of the Chinese love for luxury brands? Is it aesthetic appreciation or is it a desire to come across as westernized, European? Or is it really just, as Greg says, getting the, that badge of success? Well, you have to understand that no other country has gone through so much change in such a short amount of time. So, for example, if you look at the West, you look at Europe, you know, there was the Industrial Revolution that took 100, 150 years the U.S., you know, con- uh, American expansion that happened pretty much in tandem with continental expansion. And then, you know, later on, you had the services revolution and then technological revolution. Now, in China, that ever, all three of those happened in the past 30 years. I have clients who tell me, you know, clients who were born in, uh, in the 70s, and they tell me that on, on their birthday, their mother gave them an egg because that's how poor, that's how poor their family was. Those born in the 60s and 70s are really the first crop of first generation wealth because before that everybody was poor during the Cultural Revolution. When you go through such extreme poverty, you know, then, then there is a desire to make sure that, that when, when you do have everything, you want to sort of really indulge. And you don't want to say no to anything that your, your, your children or your wife or your loved ones uh, want. That sort of is a big part of the driving factor of the psychology behind it and the the inclination to spend. So I think that in, in Europe, I mean, the rest of the world, a lot of money is old money, at least up until the, you know, the tech money came in. And so people who inherit their money aren't necessarily such big spenders as first-generation Chinese that have made it. So for them, money is literally easy come, easy go. Because they made it overnight, they're willing to you know spend a lot just as quickly. Then, of course, you know, there is sort of the, it's conspicuous consumption, but so is it anywhere in the world. And in fact, when you look at America, when you had all that sort of oil money and the robber barons that just came up about 100 years ago, you know, Americans were going to Europe and were buying antiques in cash and were behaving terribly. They were considered very brash and very rude and shocked Europeans. Um, and then look at Russia. Right. So I think that China's just going through what you see any other developing country go through when 400 million people are raised out of poverty and into middle class. And then, you know, middle class becomes upper middle class, upper middle class becomes rich, so on and so forth. Uh, I think you sort of have to look at it that way. So, Greg, how much of it is about hierarchy and signaling your status in the society? Um, well, so there's a, there's a great show that came out um, in early July this year um, that represents exactly that in terms of 
um, people's recognition of where each luxury brand stands uh, in relation to each other in terms of what it means and the success badge that it represents for you. Um, and so it's called Nothing, Over Th Nothing But 30. Um, and it's about women in their 30s really um, struggling with different um, normal life, uh, life struggles. But one of them being acceptance on a social level um, within a, a, spe a specific group. And so there's a great scene where this um, main character attends a social event with other kind of housewives, rich housewives, um, and then takes a photo where she's holding a Chanel bag and they're all holding Hermes or Kelly or Birkin bags. And in the end, when they post the photo online on their social media, they end up cropping her because it's just not the, the it's just not as, I guess she's not part of the club, the social club. Because Chanel doesn't quite cut it. Exactly. <laughs> Chanel doesn't quite cut it. And this is really something in China where Hermes has been seen for a long time as kind of the king of luxury. And then you have a second sphere and then you have a third sphere where you, where you, might, where you might see Gucci and, and Balenciaga and, and, and so on. And in the second sphere, you might have Dior and Celine and Chanel. Um, so it's interesting that I think this kind of knowledge is much more spread within Chinese consumers than we might have in the West where, you know, consumers might not really see the, the huge difference between these brands. Sarah Jane, does that show ring true to you? Uh, yes, actually, I, I watched the, sh the show, all 43 episodes of it, um, nothing but 30. And actually, this is based on a real situation that happened between, uh, actually, a, a, a friend of mine from Beijing, uh, her name is Hong Huang. And she's sort of considered like, you know, red blood, sort of like, you know, sort of communist royalty in China, because her mother was the English tutor to Mao Zedong, and her and her grandfather was the calligraphy tutor to Mao Zedong. And when Nixon came to negotiate with Deng Xiaoping, uh, her mother was the translator. So... My friend Hong Kuang, she opened a, a a local Chinese fashion magazine and sort of you know was 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 da opened a, a a boutique store as well in Beijing in San Li Tun, and the editor in chief of Harper's Bazaar, um, Su Meng, who's actually very well known in China, they all took a group photo together and Su Meng posted the photo and she cut out Hong Kuang, <laughs> and 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 Hong Kuang posted the photo. And and so then so then people all saw that oh well that you know and and Sumang got a lot of criticism for it because it shows that you're sort of the scheming conniving you know what are you like it's called Xinji kind of like you know you're you're not a you're not calculating. a gracious woman right yeah very exactly very calculating amazing so the real housewives of Beijing then <laughs> <laughs> and and it's it's interesting what you say about you know the the uh, kind of the snob, snobism a little bit being seen. And it's kind of, you mentioned earlier, Sarah, you know, that it was all pretty much new money when, you know, uh, from the 1980s and 1990s, uh, when people started, you know, being lifted into the upper, upper, upper middle class and, 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 and the affluent. But now it seems like you're starting to have these manufactured kind of layers, you know, between the brands so that you can still have this, this kind of old money versus new money, even though it's mm. more like you know, the, 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 the highest level of bag and the highest level of luxury consumption versus the second highest level. So it's interesting that over just the, the space of 30 years or 40 years, you had this already develop. Mm. And Sarah Jane, what do the poorer uh, or more ordinary Chinese think about all this new wealth? Is there an aspiration to become like these globetrotting Chinese one day? Or is there sort of a class aggression or almost a defensiveness about how rich some Chinese have got? Well, I think that what you see is difficult for sort of those that, that, that didn't get rich is that 
They, they think about their peers, their childhood friends, back when everybody had nothing, so in the 70s and 80s. And uh, they think, oh, well, you know, my schoolmate, and maybe in school, you know, my grades were better than his. And, you know, my family had a bicycle, which was a sign of wealth. And, you know, we, I was better off. I went to a better university. But then literally within two generations, the, you know, so, so it was 20, 20 odd years, 30 years, this classmate of yours gains immense wealth to the point that, you know, I mean, publicly listed company or, you know, private jet, um, and, and obviously doesn't have very much in common with, with, with those of with their peers that didn't make it. And you see a lot of these, in third, especially in second, third, fourth tier cities, a lot of the, the ones that became very, very successful, they actually are very, very lonely because while obviously they are, everybody in their little town knows them, at the same time, there is a lot of animosity or, you know, jealousy that, that now the gap has widened so much and in, you know, within, within the same lifetime. And I think that's where Xi Jinping did. I can understand why he did what he did when he came to power in 2012, 2013, was he immediately did this sort of anti-corruption, uh, anti-luxury, reined everything back. And he had to. Otherwise, the rich, I mean, the rich were already getting richer, the poor were getting poorer. Otherwise, it was just going to get even worse. And he saw that China was headed on this, oh, you know, it's just so polarized. And, you know, for, for, for the benefit of the masses, which I think is what every government should be doing, they should be making decisions for the best of the majority. He stepped in and curbed, you know, the, yes, it did mean that business wasn't as rosy as before. Uh, luxury brand sales didn't do as well as before. But uh, he that that's really kind of what he had an eye towards. Yes, Sarah Jane, so what you're referring to when it comes to President Xi's anti-corruption drive is the fact that, Previously to that drive, gift giving of luxury brand items, antiques, cars, alcohol, it was a big part of Communist Party culture, and indeed the culture of the Chinese elite more generally. But when President Xi came in, that all became very heavily penalised. And now that people are quite afraid to purchase these handbags for your contact's wife, for example. But when it comes to uh, scrutiny, Greg, can I ask you about the role played by social media? Obviously, in the age of the internet and in a pretty digitally connected country like China, it's much easier to see who has more wealth than you. Does that create a problem for people who do have that wealth? Yeah, I mean, I, I think in terms of the sheer size of social media and the adoption of social media and also the topics that are being discussed on social media, you know, I think m most of the conversations really are not geared if you compare Twitter, for example, with Weibo. On Twitter, I think most of the conversations are, you know, around journalists and opinions and, and political opinions. Well, in China, the most visible brands tend to be the luxury brands who have huge budgets to advertise to, to consumers. And therefore, you know, uh, the masses kind of also know more about luxury brands than I would say in, in, in Europe or in the West. And so this is where they discuss also, you know, all the, the implications and the dynamics that luxury brands have and the way that they're being consumed. For example, one of the sons of the, 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 the most famous billionaires in China, I think in 2016, he bought, I think it was eight or nine iPhones and a Fendi bag for his dog and posted that photo <laughs> online and that created huge backlash. I mean, there might, there might have been a strategy maybe to promote his own business, but it was just a, a one kind of symbol of the way that, you know, you still had, um, you know, uh, a lot of new rich, um, which they call, well, Fuadai or Tuha, you know, showing off their wealth ostensibly in a way that wasn't really in line with 
Chinese culture and, you know, propriety, basically. Yeah. Sarah Jane, more broadly on social media, do the fashion forward Chinese look at social media for what's the next uh, hottest thing? And are there Chinese influences? Um, absolutely. And I would say those who are really fashion forward look to Instagram. So even though, you know, Instagram is technically blocked in China, as is Facebook, as is Google, as is Twitter, etc. All, all those who really fashion forward do have a VPN and have Instagram where they, they actually follow a lot of overseas influencers too. So there are a few overseas influencers who are quite popular in China. And, and of course, there are the local influencers. So the, most of the influencers in China are based in Shanghai. So where, where like actors and actresses, kind of sort of the, the Hollywood stuff is, is, in, is in Beijing because entertainment is a, is a highly government-regulated industry. Therefore, it needs to be in Beijing where they have to do government relations. But all the influences in China, they call them KOLs, key opinion leaders, are in, are in Shanghai. Um, and I think that you've seen the difference between Beijing and Shanghai starting in about 2015 um, because I moved to Beijing in 2012 after I graduated from Harvard Business School where I did a two-year MBA. I moved to Beijing to set up Institute Sarita, my finishing school. And that was the best time to be in Beijing. Well, you know, I mean, it, the anti-corruption law had just come in, but it was still a great time because a lot of hai gui, uh, which I mean, sort of like, it's like Chinese kids that had studied abroad and were now coming back to China. They were setting up businesses. They were entrepreneurs. You had a lot of expats in Beijing. Uh, it was very tolerant. There were a lot of artists, you know, had their studios in Beijing. But then, you know, over the years, Beijing has become a much more serious capital. Expat, a lot of expats have left. A lot of artist studios have been just t pulled down uh, to, for, for redevelopment without, you know, with overnight warning. And so a lot of this has moved, a lot of lifestyle and the more artistic and cultural stuff has actually moved to Shanghai. And Shanghai is the city they show the world. So, and, and fashion brands, luxury brands have always been in, in, in Shanghai because they don't need to do government relations. So I'd say starting in 2015 and particularly now, you really see the rise of Shanghai, especially with its proximity to Hangzhou, which is the birthplace of Alibaba, then Shanghai sort of come up with that whole e-commerce boom. But it's not all smooth sailing, even in Shanghai. Indeed, it wasn't long ago, only a few years, in fact, when Dolce & Gabbana got into trouble for an advert that they ran ahead of their Shanghai show. And the Ferrari got so heated that the show was cancelled by the government. What happened was that Dolce & Gabbana ran a pretty interesting advert. You can hear a little bit of it here. Margarita pizza bean. Huan Dos and Gabbana. Now, I won't play the whole advert because it's in Chinese and that won't be very interesting to a lot of listeners. But the conceit of the advert is a Chinese model trying to use chopsticks to eat traditional Italian foods like margarita pizzas and cannoli. She's obviously struggling and on Chinese social media, it was seen as a suggestion that the Chinese are not civilized, westernized enough to even understand how to use knife and fork. And the mispronunciation of Dolce and Gabbana at the very beginning of Dos and Gabbana also did not escape some people's notice. So there was a huge backlash in China, which led to Dolce and Gabbana making an apology and trying to do it in Chinese as well. Dal profondo del nostro cuore, gli chiediamo scusa. So, Greg, are your clients wary about getting on the wrong side of the market and of the government? Oh, all the time. Um, I think, you know, one of the things about Twitter, like Weibo in China, is just that everybody can comment on whatever they see. And 
um, you know, you have strong opinions on both sides. Now for the Dolce & Gabbana case, that happened not in a vacuum, but there was quite a, a history of luxury brands making faux pas. Um, when, when it comes to interpreting Chinese culture or celebrating Chinese holidays and maybe going about it a cheap way or not really fully capturing the spirit of a holiday, for example. Or there, there were more serious incidents, you know, with discrimination maybe in Hong Kong stores or in Paris stores or perceived discrimination. And so every year when these crises happen, you know, the, the whole kind of nationalist sentiment and the, the feeling that of, you know, being ridiculed or being taken advantage of, especially by Western brand, has been growing, especially in the, the, the negative sentiment. And this is one of the reasons also where you're starting to see more and more luxury consumers looking for Chinese brands, because there's this pride rising in the fact that Chinese manufacturing has evolved so much that they can, um, you know, equal or even better the quality of, of Western brands. A lot of them, a lot of the manufacturing hubs actually have been manufacturing for the, for the European brands and the, and the American brands. And so you're starting to have, you know, that kind of hypersensitivity against, you know, Western brands not fully capturing the, the Chinese spirit and, um, you know, wanting to basically promote your own culture and, and, and pride, you know, in the fact that China is now on the world stage um, and it doesn't have to keep buying Western luxury brands. Mm. Sarah-Jane, what did you make of that advert? Absolutely. Yeah, I know I, I agree with Greg. And also, I just wanted to add, so, um, you know, uh, well, so firstly, for the advert, what really caused an uproar? I mean, the, you know, the, the, the advertisement itself, yes, it got uh, criticism. But what really was the last straw on the back was, that broke the camel's back, was when an Instagram user, I think she was Chinese, uh, direct messaged one of the, either Dolce or Gabbana, one of them, and uh, pointed it out. And he wrote back a, a scathing response, say, you know, really insulting Chinese people. And that got screenshotted. And that, and so we have to remember that that's actually what broke the camel's back. So I completely sympathize with the Chinese consumers here because you know, Dolce and Gabbana was doing very, very well before that. They, they were known as a very, they had very strong sales. The Chinese women loved their stuff because it was very feminine. It was, you know, very, um, just basically the style was, was very much what Chinese women liked. Uh, but, but then, you know, so if you make your money from this is your biggest market and, and then the, 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 one of the co-founders is, you know, just is, 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 is insulting his consumer. I can understand where the, chi where the Chinese were coming from. Um, now, on the second point, because Greg just mentioned that uh, a few years ago, starting a few years ago, I'd say about you know, two, three years ago, Guo Huo. Guo is you know, sort of Chinese country, and then Huo is, is product. So this is the term for it, Guo Huo, became very, very popular. And I think it's because you know, those born in the 80s, so the millennials consist of the post-80s and those born in the 90s. Those born in the 80s think that anything Western is gold. So, you know, the, anything, oh, as long as it's foreign made, it's this, that, okay, then we're willing to pay a premium. But that's the biggest difference between the 80s consumer and the 90s, 90s consumer. Those born in the 1990s, they don't care. They don't, to, the, to them, they're not, they're not going to pay a huge premium just because it's an American brand. Um, they, you know, and, and if there's something really cool and it's local Chinese, they're very, ha and it's cheaper, they're very happy to buy that. That's really interesting, Sarah Jane, because growing up in China, one thing that was always levied as a derogatory term at people who were seen as being too westernized was chong yang mei wei, so i.e. anything that's western is gold and anything that's Chinese is seen as behind the times, this sort of inferiority complex. But are you saying that 
the younger Chinese consumers are really coming into their own with Chinese made goods much more. Absolutely. I mean, that's fascinating. And Sarah Jane, you were too polite to say uh, exactly what Stefano Gabbana said on Instagram, but I'll read it out for listeners who haven't been following this story. He says, It was deleted, the advert, from Chinese social media because my office is as stupid as the superiority of the Chinese. It was by my will never cancelled. And from now on, in all the interviews that I will do internationally, I will say that the country of five poo emojis is China. Now, that's pretty um, bizarre messaging and strong language. And his office did say afterwards that his account had been hacked. So make from that what you will. And on that lovely note, uh, it was a pleasure to have you both, Sarah Jane and Greg, on the podcast this episode. Thanks for joining me and I hope to speak to you soon. And listeners, do join me again for the next episode in a couple of weeks' time.